morning, everyone. Welcome back. It's been a two-month hiatus for us. And I hope those of you who attended the College of Science lecture series at Centennial Hall enjoyed them. Um, but now we're back here. And I welcome those of you watching us on the World Wide Web, either on iTunes U or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. Before we introduce tonight's speaker, I'd just like to show you once again, we have three more lectures for this spring semester. Um, however, April 6th, that's the night of the NCAA basketball championship. <laughs> hey, folks, this happened in 2002, right? If the University of Arizona is in the basketball championship game, I will then postpone that lecture one week from April 6th to April 13th. But if we are not in the championship game, we will have the lecture on April 6th, okay? <laughs> also, if there are any students here for an assignment, I am the person that will validate your assignment at the conclusion of the question and answer period. I'll be down at this table. It's a beautiful night here in Tucson, Arizona with a beautiful crescent moon and our 21-inch Raymond E. White Jr. telescope will be open for your viewing pleasure at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. It's the white building with the big white dome on top, only white building on campus. So, without further ado, I would like to introduce tonight's speaker. Now, I told you in the past, I love to introduce new faculty when they come to Stewart Observatory and the Department of Astronomy here at the University of Arizona. And this year we have three new faculty. You've already met two of them. You met Caitlin Crowder back in October and you met Dan Stark for the one uh, lecture we had back in early January. Well, this is our third new assistant professor. It's Professor Gertina Besla. Dr. Besla received her bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy at the University of Toronto. Then she went to Harvard and got her PhD. They know I'm from Cornell and I don't, yeah. And so she received her PhD in astronomy from Harvard. Then she won the very prestigious Hubble Fellowship and was a Hubble Fellow at Columbia University in New York City. And straight from Columbia, she came here last year. Uh, and she specializes, as you'll see, in galaxies, extragalactic astronomy, collisions of galaxies, on the theory side. She knows how to use a computer. And you're gonna see some of that tonight. So we'll call upon, I need to do this, call upon Professor Gertina Besla to give us a talk on the title, Galaxy Collisions in Our Backyard. Dr. Besla. Thanks everyone. You can hear me fine, no problems. All right, good. Just, just a little bit too loud. Okay, how's this? All right, cool. Thanks for the introduction. Um, so I'm here today to talk to you about galaxy collisions. So galaxy collisions are some of the most dramatic events in our universe. They result in the destruction of two or more galaxies, as is evidenced by this image here. But they also are not just purely destructive. They also result in the formation of new stars. And, are the, and we believe they're also the explanation for the veritable zoo of different types of galaxies that we observe today. So when we think of galaxy collisions, these dramatic events, we often think of them happening far, far away from our own Milky Way. And that we today reside in a fairly calm and safe part of the universe. 
So my job tonight is to dispel that notion and to actually indicate to you that there are, in fact, galaxy collisions that are going on in our own backyards. The first one are the large and small Magellanic clouds. These two galaxies are readily visible to the naked eye in the southern hemisphere, and they've, in fact, recently collided with each other. And secondly, I will show you that we now know the ultimate manner and timing of the fate of our Milky Way, because the Andromeda galaxy is coming directly towards us and will eventually smash into our own galaxy. So before we go into the destruction of our Milky Way, we should talk a little bit about what our Milky Way looks like right now and to understand then later how it might change. So this is an image of our Milky Way. And so shown here is what basically looks to us like a, um, a bar across the sky. And what we're seeing here are both the southern and the northern hemispheres at the same time. And the light that's coming from this galaxy is obscured to us because of there's dust, for example, in the way. These are these black splotches, this dust that's blocking light. So our Milky Way galaxy is a spiral disk galaxy, and we reside within it. So when we are sitting inside it and looking at this galaxy, it looks like a plane, like a, you know, a line across the sky. The actual galaxy itself is structured as follows. There's a stellar disk. And then there's a kind of puffed up region in the center, center where there are stars that are forming what we call a stellar bulge. And the very center of, that galaxy, of our galaxy is a supermassive black hole, which is pretty quiet. It's not really doing much of anything interesting. But during galaxy collisions, pretty dramatic things happen with supermassive black holes. So to kind of understand and visualize this a little bit better, I'll show a visualization of what our Milky Way galaxy looks like. So this is an image that's, if you were to be outside of our galaxy looking face down, you would see our Milky Way as a spiral galaxy, and here's the sun, and we sit kind of in a spur off of one of these major spiral arms. Let's see if I can get this to... All right. So I'm switching over to a visualization that will show you how our Milky Way galaxy looks like so starting from this top-down perspective, we're now going to look at it more edge-on, as though we are actually at the location of the sun and looking at their galaxy. And so as you can see, all of a sudden this dust lane comes into our view, and we get these dust clouds that are blocking the light in the stellar disk. So we sit in a disk galaxy that we see edge-on. So this is the structure of our Milky Way galaxy right now. It's a pretty stable disk galaxy, spiral disk galaxy. But during collisions, these kinds of disk structures, these nice pristine disks, get completely messed up. So we know this because we've gone and used the Hubble Space Telescope to look at images of galaxies far, far away from us. And we can find you know, pristine, beautiful disk galaxies or ellipticals, which are more like spheroidal type galaxies. And then there's this, which is just a disaster zone. These things just look completely messed up. We don't, I mean, what is going on here? How many galaxies are really part of this one? There are some spokes that are coming off on the edges. And so we look at all of these and we call them peculiar, messed up objects. And really, literally, they were called peculiar objects. Um, and so we, as a theorist, I sit here and I look at all of this and I want to understand what this tells me about galaxy evolution. And so this is kind of what is really interesting about astronomy. There is a give and take between observers and theorists. We take images that are taken by observers, and then we put it into a theoretical model to try and understand what this tells us about how galaxies evolve. So we can start off with looking about two very different galaxies and then allowing them to smash into one another and try and see if we can piece together the sequence. 
Now, the sequence of, of events will occur over billions of years, so you can't observe it happening in real time. Instead, what we rely on is these, these kinds of montages of different images that are basically snapshots in time. They tell us about different stages of the evolution, and we need to put them together in the right sequence to try and get an order of what will happen as two galaxies smash into one another. So what I'm gonna show you is a computer simulation of this type of collision that might occur. What you'll be looking at is two galaxies that look an awful lot like our own Milky Way. There are two spiral disk galaxies. We're gonna be watching the distribution of stars in those galaxies, and how that distribution of stars changes from being these nice disks to these you know, very peculiar objects. And so as the simulation is run, at a very uh, specific point in time, the simulation will stop and it might rotate, and then it's going to be matched against real observations that were taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. So in this way, we can create this computer simulation and then test it against observations of real galaxies. So here we have these two spiral galaxies. And now the simulation shows them fairly close together. It's stopped and then matched against a Hubble Space Telescope image. The two galaxies get closer and closer together until they eventually plow directly through one another. And you may think this is kind of crazy, but the thing is that these images that we'll show you here of this actual image of two galaxies colliding shows this kind of morphology. So we do think this process really does happen. Now the only physics that's being put into here really is is gravity. We're just watching how these different particles in that are representing each of these disk galaxies individually are reacting to the gravitational forces from the other galaxy and from all the other particles around them. So as you can see, you can form these sort of structures where you have these long spiral arms. Uh, we call these tidal tails. And then you also have bridges that occur between these two galaxies. So we believe that the hallmarks of galaxy interactions are these long tidal tail-like structures and bridges that will occur between two separate galaxies until they ultimately coalesce into something that looks more like an ellipsoidal. The point is that the original disk structure is completely destroyed, and the galaxy changes into something different. Now, this particular simulation only showed you the distribution of stars in this collision. And of course, galaxies aren't just made up of stars, they're also made up of gas. And as I also mentioned, there are supermassive black holes that reside in the center of these galaxies. And so one thing that's interesting to think about is, well, if a galaxy has a supermassive black hole and doesn't really do much of anything, it's not eating too much gas, what happens during a collision of two galaxies? Well, during that process, you sh we showed you that the stars are going to be completely distorted, but the gas will be as well. And in particular, gas may get funneled into the center of these galaxies, and all of a sudden now, the supermassive black hole has a lot of fuel to eat. And then we'll see the energetic <laughs> result of this process. So what you're going to be watching is two disk galaxies, same thing, just like the Milky Way. These galaxies have a lot of gas, and you're going to be looking at the gas distribution as these two galaxies collide. So we're not going to be looking at the stars. In the center of each of these galaxies is a supermassive black hole, which will then react to how the gas is funneled towards it. So before, the previous simulation only had gravity, but now we're going to be having other processes, like we'll allow the gas to cool and to form stars, we'll allow the black holes to eat this gas and energetically throw it out. The colors that you're seeing in this simulation are indicating temperature of gas. So blue is colder gas, and then the hotter colors will indicate, be indicated by green or red. So during the first passage, 
There's a bridge that forms between the two of them, this very long spiral structure, uh, tidal tails will form. And now already you can see the colors kind of changing in the inner regions of both of these galaxies as gas was fed into the supermassive black hole. These two galaxies then come back towards one another because of their own mutual gravity. They coalesce, and then all of a sudden this disaster happens. It just throws out gas all over the place. It's extremely energetic. And at this point, the black holes have merged, the two supermassive black holes have merged and also eaten all this gas and become what we would call a quasar, a quasi-stellar object. So this is one potential mechanism that we can fuel supermassive black holes into these energetic events that we can see from very, very far away. And we think this was a fairly common process at high redshift a long time ago. And today, it doesn't seem to be quite so common. So, you know, this is all very, very dramatic. <laughs> These are all, it seems to be, you know, pretty crazy things happening. And again, how does this relate to our own Milky Way? So let's kind of bring everything back. Our own Milky Way galaxy is not alone. So let's just think about our own Milky Way. I showed you the spiral disk. Now, if we zoom out a little bit further, what we'll find is that our own Milky Way is actually surrounded by a large number of smaller galaxies. These small galaxies are called dwarf galaxies. They're also referred to as satellites of our Milky Way. So they orbit around our Milky Way much in the same way as the moon goes around the Earth. So a current count as of February 2015 was that there's about 26 of these small guys around our Milky Way. From theoretical models, we actually expect there to be closer to hundreds. And the way that we reconcile the problem is, well, we think that a lot of them are too faint to see. And if this is true, um, then we should be able to find more of them if we were able to look deeper. So there's the new LSST is going to come online, hopefully around 2018. Um, and that's actually going to be housed here at Stewart Observatory at NOAO. And so um, that's going to be an in-house facility, which is going to show, look at the sky to very deep levels to try and see more and more of these dwarfs. But we don't actually have to wait until LSST comes online, because there actually are new surveys that are looking at the sky. So this is another image of basically the entire sky kind of flattened out onto um, the screen. So you're looking at both the northern and the southern hemispheres at the same time. All of these blue names are names of satellite dwarf galaxies that we knew about up until February 2015. Now, you'll notice that most of them are in this portion of the sky, which is the northern hemisphere, basically, most of the north, northern skies. And this is covered by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. So this is a large survey of the, of the portion of the sky to a fairly deep level. With that one survey, we were able to come up with a whole a lot of dwarf galaxies, roughly 26 or 25 of them. And then in the south, there really wasn't much coverage at all. There's only a few blue symbols here. And that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of dwarfs there. It just means that we hadn't found them because we really hadn't looked that deep. So a new survey came online. This is the DES survey, which is actually being done by NOAO facilities. Um, and they found nine new dwarf galaxies. And this was just announced about two weeks ago. So nine new ones in the south. So hooray, there actually are more dwarf galaxies around. But not just that, there was another one that was announced like two days ago. And then tonight, as of tonight, uh, my team actually found a new one. Huzzah! <laughs> Here, Hydra 2, in a different area of the sky that we're serving with a completely different mission. So all of a sudden, this is a super exciting time right now for dwarf galaxies because we're finding more and more of them. And this is really good because they really should have been there. If we didn't find them, there would have been a huge problem. <laughs> so, you know, and hopefully this means that in the future, as we can get to deeper surveys, we're just going to find so many more. And you're going to hear a whole lot more about this. So this is all really hot topics right now. So, you know, that's around our own Milky Way. So our Milky Way is surrounded by about 37 right now new dwarf galaxies, some of them being new.
Um, these also need to be confirmed. We think they're dwarf galaxies. Really, all we found were like globs of stars that are close together. And we got to confirm that they actually have um, dark matter. So that's the next step. So if we zoom out even further, so around our own Milky Way, there are a whole bunch of small dwarf galaxies. But if we go out even further, there is, in fact, a massive galaxy quite close to us, which is the Andromeda Galaxy. And the Andromeda Galaxy has its own set of small satellite galaxies as well, about 32 of them. And it's much easier to see Andromedas in general because where you can look at the full thing in one shot as opposed to having to look at only certain sections of the night sky around our Milky Way. So the Andromeda Galaxy is about 2.5 million light years away. All right, so this is the structure of what we call our local group of galaxies. So I've talked to you about collisions. So the large and small Magellanic clouds, those are those two galaxies you can see with the naked eye in the southern hemisphere. And those two galaxies, I'm arguing, are a collision. So I'm going to talk about them next. But I'm also going to talk about Andromeda, which is about 2.5 million light years away from us today. But in you know, about 3 or 4 billion years from now, it's going to be a lot closer. All right, the southern hemisphere. This is an image of the Patagonia region in Argentina. This was taken in 2007 when the comet McNaught was passing by. Here is our Milky Way galaxy. Again, it looks like a, uh, a you know, strip across the sky. And here are the large and the small Magellanic clouds. And they look like clouds in the sky, but they are, in fact, two galaxies. These are, these two, these are the most massive galaxies that orbit around our Milky Way. So the large and small Magellanic clouds are about 150,000 and 170,000 light years away from us. So looking in at the larger of these galaxies, this is an image that was actually drawn by eye, by hand, uh, by Sir John Herschel uh, in 1847. And what's really remarkable about this picture is, first of all, it indicates that light pollution really is such a problem right now. But, you know, before you could really see all these amazing structures. So if you take this image and you compare it to modern-day images of the LMC, this is the large Magellanic Cloud, the bigger of those two galaxies that I mentioned, you find that this hand-drawn image actually captures most of the major features. This galaxy has a bar. It's over here. It has kind of one spiral arm. It's over here. And then there's this kind of 30, this is this uh, star-forming region here, which pops up over there. Um, this galaxy is not, does not look like our Milky Way. It doesn't look like a beautiful spiral galaxy. It looks kind of messed up. And originally, it was called as more of a spiral, as a, an irregular galaxy. The interesting thing um, with this galaxy is it does have some fairly well-defined structures. For example, it has this bar. And this image here is actually my favorite image of the LMC. And this is a little weird because it looks terrible, right? I mean, just being, I'm going to show you beautiful pictures as we go along. And this is going to look like the worst of it. But I swear, this is my favorite. And the reason it's my favorite, and here's the LMC. You can see this is actually the bar of the LMC. So it really is a prominent structure in the bar. But this is my favorite not because of the quality of this image, but rather about because of where it was taken. This was actually taken by the Spirit rover on Mars. So they actually took the camera and they pointed it up <laughs> and then took a picture of the night sky and there was the LMC. So it really is a feature that you would see anywhere in our solar system. And I guess this is the first example of astronomy really being done on, you know, extragalactic astronomy being done on a different planet, which is kind of neat to think about. No, so, no yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of dust in the sky, though. There's a lot of other problems. <laughs> but... So here is a, you know, uh, a different image of the LMC. This was taken by an amateur astronomer, Carlos Milovich. This is, um, I think, a roughly 8 to 10 hour exposure. And it's a little bit hard to see, but there's actually structure all the way out here and all the way down here around the LMC. 
So while the LMC in the first kind of images looks like a bit of a, a mess, it has this only one-armed spiral and it looks very patchy in structure, the deeper and deeper images that we get reveals a lot more structure. And it does turn out that more or less the LMC is actually kind of an, a regular object. But it's certainly not perfectly symmetric. It does look a bit messed up. And so then the question is, is the structure, the asymmetries that we see, the fact there's only one spiral arm, the bar is not in the center of this overall galaxy, is this a result of a collision? Is this something that messed it up? So the LMC is not by itself. Um, there is a smaller galaxy, the Small Magellanic Cloud, which is close by. This is a deep optical image that was taken um, of the LMC and the SMC. All of this structure is actually foreground dust. It's actually material that's in our own Milky Way that is uh, in the line of sight towards these galaxies. So you're looking at visible light here. But astronomers have a lot more um, uh, tools in their toolkit. They can look not just in the visible light, but we can also look in different wave bands. In particular, we can look in the radio. And the radio is really interesting because it captures the distribution of hydrogen gas. So while these two galaxies don't really look like they've been interacting, it doesn't look like this guy did much of damage at all to this one. That's because we're looking in the visible. If we look in the hydrogen gas in the radio, this is what we see. All of a sudden, there's this huge bridge that connects these two galaxies. And it becomes much more clear that these two galaxies are, in fact, linked in some way. Now, I showed you the simulations earlier where the hallmarks of galaxy interactions are bridges and tails. And here's a bridge. And this signals to all of us that there must be some sort of an interaction going on between these two galaxies. So that was an image that was kind of zoomed in on the LMC and the SMC. But we can actually zoom out and look at the whole structure of these, of these two galaxies and their structure around our Milky Way. So this, again, our Milky Way galaxy here, this disk that we are sitting in, and in the southern hemisphere, the large and small Magellanic clouds, and this, is, again, is invisible light. But we, again, we can go and look at the radio instead and see what the gas distribution is. And we know there should be a bridge, but what's perhaps a bit more surprising is there's not just a bridge. There's also a huge tail that trails behind these two galaxies about 100 degrees across the sky. And there's more material that leads them, too. So we call this the leading arm and the Magellanic stream. I mean, this is 100 degrees across the sky. This is a massive structure. And really, again, you can think of it as a tail, and then there's bridges, and that right away, galaxy interactions. Something is going on, and it is the gas that has revealed this to us. So how does the structure form? How do we get a stream of gas 100 degrees across the sky? Well, one of the leading theories was that, well, maybe these galaxies have been going around and around our Milky Way for, say, forever. And every time they get close to our Milky Way, Milky Way tides strips out uh, gas from both of these galaxies and stretches it across the sky. So in this picture, the galaxies today, we assume that they've always been around our Milky Way. And then we can, um, we can look at their orbits, their orbit around our Milky Way backward in time. So you have to make some assumption about how fast they're moving today and we know where they're located. So given their speed today, given what we think the mass of the Milky Way is, we can compute what their orbit should be backwards in time. And the answer we get is, well, look, they're making multiple orbits around and around the Milky Way. And they get close, every time they get close by to the Milky Way, Milky Way tides rips out material. And this was a leading picture for how that stream of gas formed um, up until about 2007. And in 2007, I started my thesis. <laughs> and so what we found, was that I, I worked with a number of observers, uh, Nitya Kalivailal in particular, who is currently a faculty member at UVA, 
And Nitya found the speed of these galaxies, the large and the small Magellanic Cloud. She clocked how fast they were moving with the, the Hubble Space Telescope. Then she gave me her measurements, because we were both graduate students at the time. She hadn't published the paper, so I got it early. And then I went and created my own models, and I tried to find out what did those speeds actually mean. So when I created orbits of the Magellanic Clouds backwards in time, using now the new speeds, I found a very different picture than what people had had before. Instead of making multiple orbits around the Milky Way, kind of closer to this orange line here, and you just continue this over and over again, instead, with the higher speeds, it turns out that the Magellanic Clouds came from much, much further away. And this is kind of an inset showing you a kind of zoomed-out view. And it turns out that it's more likely that the Magellanic Clouds have really never made one complete orbit around our Milky Way, and were instead only very recently captured by our galaxy. So this causes a problem. If the Magellanic Clouds haven't been going around and around the Milky Way, then how does the stream form? Because the Milky Way tides can't strip it out over multiple passages if they've never made a passage before. So we need to think about this again. And remember what I said. This looks like a tail, a tail, and a bridge. And bridges and tails are, hall are hallmarks of galaxy interactions. So let's not think about this as an interaction between these galaxies and our Milky Way. But let's think of this instead as an interaction between these two galaxies themselves. So galaxy simulations have shown us that there are bridges and there are tails, and this matches reality fairly well. So let's apply this theory to the Magellanic Clouds. This is a simulation that I ran of the small Magellanic Cloud orbiting around the large Magellanic Cloud in an idealized case. There's no Milky Way. There's no other structures around. It's just these two galaxies interacting with each other, and you're looking at the gas distribution around these systems. And so as you can see, every time this guy gets close to the larger one, gas is stripped out. And here it goes. And it forms this bridge, and it forms this tail. Now the tail can be extremely large on the sky, and you don't even have to have multiple orbits around the Milky Way, or the help of the Milky Way to do this at all. So this was an idealized case. right? They're sitting by themselves doing all this damage to each other. But we know that the Magellanic Clouds are not alone. They're, in fact, in orbit around our Milky Way. So let's stop this simulation a bit earlier and let the whole thing fall into the Milky Way and see what happens. So here, again, is this, imagine the Milky Way sitting right across this way. This will repeat a few times. We allow the Magellanic Clouds to fall into the Milky Way for the very first time, about a billion years ago. And then we'll let them come in with all the gas that they had already been stripped out uh, from interactions between these two galaxies. And we find that because of the orbit coming in fairly quickly, all of this material can get very easily stretched out along this orbit without having to go around the Milky Way completely. So instead, I believe that the formation of this structure, this Magellanic stream, this leading component, and the bridge results between, because of galaxy interactions between the two clouds themselves, these two galaxies, rather than having anything to do with the Milky Way itself. Now, I did promise a collision, though. And I remember there's this bridge. So the bridge is a little bit special. Um, while bridges do generally form during galaxy collisions, galaxy interactions, this bridge has slightly different properties than the tail. In order to explain this, um, I posited that perhaps this small guy actually didn't just get close to the large Magellanic Cloud, but actually went directly through it. And you can see this material really does point directly at the LMC. So it ran a slightly different simulation, where instead of just allowing them to interact kind of slowly over time, I had a more dramatic scenario where the SMC, the smaller guy, actually went directly through the LMC. 
So what we're going to be doing now is watching the Large Magellanic Cloud as it's in orbit around our Milky Way. And we're in a frame where we're following the LMC as it comes in. So it's not like we're seeing the full picture of the Milky Way and all the other structures. And at some point in time, the SMC goes around and comes back in and then plows directly through this guy, forming that high gas density bridge that connects these two. So you can see it's a fairly dramatic event forming this high gas density bridge, and this would allow stars to form in this particular location. There should be stars spewed out all over the place during this entire interaction. And that's actually what we're testing right now here at, uh, at U of A. So with a team at NOAO and, at, and other astronomers at U of A, what I'm doing right now is actually testing the scenario, trying to look for those stars that should have been stripped out in this particular collision. All right, so the kind of take-home points from this part of the talk is that the Magellanic Clouds, some of the, they, are, they are the most massive members of our satellite group of galaxies around the Milky Way. They are actually recently captured by our Milky Way. They haven't always been in orbit around our system. Furthermore, interactions between these two galaxies have in fact shaped their evolution rather than interactions with the Milky Way. And my third point is that I believe that the bridge that connects the two of them is actually a hallmark of a direct collision between those two galaxies. So if you actually do go to a dark sky zone in the southern hemisphere, you really can see the LMC and SMC with your naked eye. And when you look at them, just imagine one of them having gone directly through the other one. I think that's actually the likely story. So if that's something that's going on right now, what about something that's going to happen in the future? So let's turn to the Andromeda galaxy and think about the future fate of our own Milky Way. So just for reference, I think I'm sure a lot of you already know this, but if you wanted to find the Andromeda galaxy on the sky, uh, the easiest way to do it is to first locate Cassiopeia. So Cassiopeia is this W uh, in the sky. And then locate Pegasus, which looks like a box. And then basically you want to connect this point to this point of the W and go about halfway between, and there it is. So find the W, find the square, connect the two and go about halfway between, and that's where you would want to point your telescope to try and see Andromeda. So Andromeda, surprisingly, even though it looks like a bit of a smudge here, is in fact huge on the sky. This is um, an image that's shown with the full moon just to represent the scale. So if you could actually see Andromeda in its full glory, glory with a telescope, that you can actually get all the faint structures in the outskirts, it would actually be much larger than the full moon on the sky. It really is huge. We just only can see the very central regions of this galaxy. So the really crazy thing about it, though, is that it's coming directly towards us. And we know this because we can measure the Doppler shift. We can measure the fact that we know this galaxy is coming towards us and not away from us. So that's a fact. But what hasn't been a fact exactly is we know that there's some motion towards us, but we don't know the full three-dimensional speed of that galaxy because there could be not just motion towards us, it could be motion across our line of sight. And if that's the case, then we're not going to measure that from the Doppler shift. And you have to use a different technique to do that. And so the people that I've been working with at Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore use the Hubble Space Telescope to clock the sideways motion of the Andromeda galaxy with respect to our Milky Way. So now we have not just the motion towards us, we also have the motion across our line of sight. Take those together, and we now have the full speed of Andromeda. And taking that full speed, we can now figure out exactly when is Andromeda going to hit us in the future. Before, we didn't really know exactly when it was. It could have been a few you know, billion years 
in the future, or it could have been 10 billion years in the future. We really didn't have that number nailed down. But with the speed that's well known now, we don't actually have that much room to wiggle around. So the real total velocity of the Andromeda galaxy, so this is what I was saying, we know the motion towards us. Here's the Milky Way in this picture. And this is a smaller satellite galaxy of Andromeda. So the speed towards us uh, is known from the Doppler shift. And then there's the speed across our line of sight, which we determined using the Hubble Space Telescope. And what we actually found is that this speed is actually pretty small. So in the end, that full velocity is actually coming straight at us at about 110 kilometers per second. So at that speed, you could travel around the Earth in about six minutes, just for a reference point. <laughs> so the, Milky, the Andromeda galaxy is coming towards us really, really fast. So this is going to give you a bit of a schematic now of what's going to happen during this collision simulation that I'm going to show you. So in four billion years in the future, Andromeda is actually going to come very, very close to us. It's pretty much going to hit us directly. So in this picture, Andromeda, these are just images that are taken from the Hubble Space Telescope of interacting galaxies that are kind of mimicking the structures that we should see. So remember the first step in all of these kinds of simulations is to think about what we really see in reality and then try and create models for that and then compare that to what we expect um, in these simulations. So this is sort of the first passage. And we're going to include in this simulation also the small guy, M33, which is in orbit around Andromeda. The reason we're including it is because in our local group of galaxies, the largest galaxy is Andromeda, the next one is the Milky Way, and the third one is in M33. So if anyone else is going to you know, uh, cause any difference in this scenario, it might be this smaller guy. So that's why we include it. All right, so four billion years, the Milky Way and Andromeda collide for the first time. Andromeda then should move away from the Milky Way, causing these bridge and tail-like structures. That will be about five billion years. It'll reach turnaround, and then it'll come straight back at the Milky Way. There really is no way for, to avoid the situation, because the two galaxies are gravitationally attracted to one another. They are moving towards one another. And so in six billion years in the future, they are actually eventually going to merge entirely, and create a completely different system. So this is another schematic of what we might see. And this is an artist's impression of what our night sky might look like during the course of this interaction. So today, here's our Milky Way, seen as pretty much a uh, stripe across the sky. It's a disk that we sit within. And then there's Andromeda here. And as time progresses in the future, say in a billion years, Andromeda is just going to get bigger and bigger on the sky. I mean, this is really what we're going to see in our night sky. And eventually, in 3.85 billion years, and this number is actually fairly specific, the wiggle room on this is not very big, Andromeda is going to collide directly with our Milky Way. And so what's interesting is that you'll see new stars will start to form across the sky, but this whole structure will really just obscure our ability to see other galaxies that are much farther away. And so 3.9 billion years, again, new uh, stars are forming. Four billion years, the two galaxies kind of move, start moving apart from one another. This is only the first direct collision, and they move apart. But then eventually Andromeda has to swing back around and come right back at us. 5.1 billion years. All of a sudden, stars are thrown all across our night sky until about 7 billion years in the future. All we see is no longer a disk. There's no longer a stripe across the sky, but rather it's more of a spheroid where stars are scattered all over the place. So these are all illustrative schematics. So now we can try and put in this all together and put in, uh, into play also all the physics that we know of, um, of the dis uh, particularly the structure of our galaxy. We know specifically how our Milky Way is inclined 
with respect to Andromeda. We know the geometry of that system. We know the speed of stars within our Milky Way. So we can create a simulation that copies all of those properties and allows us to predict, for example, where our sun might end up in the whole thing. All right, so we're going to show a simulation. And right now, this is just a schematic that's an image that's shown on top, which shows you the uh, Milky Way's disk. And then Andromeda is going to be over in this corner. So this is the same sort of viewing geometry. All right. Okay, so in this corner here, we have the counter. So it's clocking down the time, or up the time. And so this is our showing both the northern and the southern hemispheres at the same time. You have this disk that we sit within. There's a central bulge. There's Andromeda, and also M33 is put in. And then as the time goes on, Andromeda is just going to start getting bigger and bigger on the sky. We're only about 2.8 billion years in now. We're looking for the magic 3.8, 3.9, which when this whole thing's going to happen. So we're getting closer and closer and smash. <laughs> So Andromeda makes the first passage, and already the disk structure that existed there has been distorted. Andromeda is going to come back in for its second passage and final passage. And then there you go. So the two galaxies smash into one another. That disk that used to exist across our sky is no longer there. So we believe that galaxy interactions and collisions destroy the original structure of galaxies, turning them into something new. The color of the stars also changed. So we were looking at the these stars that were in the disk galaxies, where there's also gas. So young stars, new stars can form, and those stars are bluer in color. But during this process, all the gas gets used up, and as the, they form new stars in that collision, and ultimately the final product really doesn't have much gas left at all, and so the stars get older and they get redder in color. Notice that M33 kind of just hung out there the entire time. It's just watching the whole thing go on. And that's actually more or less what we expect all the other smaller uh, satellite galaxies of our Milky Way and Andromeda to do. So one more simulation. This is now going to show you the same thing, but let's look at it as an observer someplace farther out rather than inside the Milky Way itself. All right, so here's the Milky Way. Move back over here. And again, the counter is in the bottom left corner, or right corner, rather. So we're zooming out. There's M33. Uh, sorry, that's our Milky Way. Here's M31 and M33. So the geometry, the way that Andromeda here is inclined uh, with respect to our Milky Way is not artificial. I mean, that's real. That's what we actually think the geometry of that system is. So this was all put in to mimic the actual observations of the system. So Andromeda gets closer and closer into the Milky Way. And in about 3.85, there it goes, and smashes in. And you'll see these structures, these tidal tails that form. And again, this is you know, what we expect. We've observed this happen in many, many other galaxies before. And then these two galaxies ultimately combine again. They make their passage a few times in there and then eventually coalesce into one object that looks more like a spheroid than it does like a disk. And this smaller M33 is just watching this whole situation occur out in the outskirts. All right, so this is you know, the ultimate fate of our Milky Way. But I think some of the bigger questions here is not just how our structure of our galaxy is going to change, but what about us? You know, what about the sun? And what about the Earth? So the sun is going to run out of hydrogen in about five to six billion years. So the one thing that we do know is that this entire event is going to happen before that. So in about 3.85 billion years, that first interaction between the Andromeda and the Milky Way galaxy is going to happen. So this is some, the first time, this is the 
most imminent major cosmic event that can be predicted with some certainty. And this is actually pretty cool because this is new. I mean, you know, really before the time scale was so variable, we really didn't know the answer to this. And now you can't get away from this. This is going to happen before our sun's run, sun runs out of hydrogen. So we're going to be around, well, in whatever form, the Earth will be around when this all happens. So the question that I'm going to pose to all of you is what do you think is going to happen to our sun and to our Earth during this particular event, this collision with Andromeda? So I'm opening up the floor if anyone's got any questions or ideas of what's going to happen. Yep. Nothing. Nothing's going to happen. Why is nothing going to happen? Right, exactly. So the interesting thing is our galaxy, even though I've shown these simulations of gas and stars, our galaxies are actually made mostly of empty space. The distance between stars is extremely, extremely large. So it's unlikely that our sun, for example, would smash into anything else during this entire event. So it's true. We're not going to have to worry about a direct collision with any other star in our Milky Way or in Andromeda. But is that really the whole story? Is there really nothing that, what, I mean, what is going to happen to our sun? Are we just going to stay exactly where we are in this galaxy? Any other ideas? In the other lectures, he said that, uh, that uh, there was no way that the, we would stay in the same, what do they call it, that Cinderella belt or something that, like if our planet moved just a little bit one way or another in its orbit around the sun, it would change the... Mm-hmm. No, that's right. So there's a habitable zone there's kind of a sweet spot where our Earth resides with respect to our sun. So if we move a little bit too far in towards the sun, we'll get cooked. And if we move a little bit further out, we'll freeze. And so you know, there isn't any kind of perturbations that might happen. Um, anything that moves our Earth around a little bit will cause some problems for this idea of habitability. Will we move out of that a habitable zone? And so you know, is there any ideas of I mean, how might we move out of that zone during this process? And I'll get hands so I can grab somebody. Yep. be an influx of gas because of this interaction, because obviously the Andromeda galaxy is also coming in and bringing this fresh supply. So the other thing that goes on with this is that the, the gas that's in these galaxies in Andromeda at the location of the, um, you know, of, of stars is similar to the gas density and the distribution of gas in our own galaxy. So the gas that's around us is actually pretty diffuse. It's not really all that dense. And so if you just think of it, something else in a, another galaxy with the same type of distribution of gas coming in towards us, it's not like we're going to bring in a whole huge clump of gas that will be easily given into the, into the sun. So even if you increase the local density by a little bit, it's not going to be a huge influx of material that will really fuel the sun in an extreme way. And the, the reason is simply just that the densities are too low. It's the same kind of argument of collisions with the, with the um, between stars, most of the galaxy really is empty space, very diffuse material. So it takes fairly special environments to create, the, the, to create those environments where stars actually form and where you get densities high enough for very special regions of the, of the galaxy. But what about, I mean, moving the Earth around? What might cause the Earth to move around in our solar system? 
So, so the sun moving, this, the sun actually being displaced. So the sun is going to, so this, maybe this is the first point. So the sun is actually going to end up at a larger location than it is today. This is, so the way I know this <laughs> is that I've created these simulations where I'm actually able to match the structure of these galaxies of the Milky Way. And so because of that, I'm matching not just the, the density and the, the distribution of stars, but also their speeds. So I can pick out in these simulation at very much right at the starting point any particle that looks like it could be something similar to the sun. So something that has the right speed and the right location today. And then I can track it forwards in time and find out where it ends up. So all of those particles that look like the sun, I followed where they ended up, and vast majority of them ended up at much larger distances than they are today. So they're basically kind of getting flung out of the system. They're not escaping entirely. Nothing ever is actually completely lost to the Milky Way. And the way to think about that is you've doubled the mass of the Milky Way. Not only is there the Milky Way, now there's also Andromeda. And you've really just created the mass budget being so much higher that you can't just fling something out and have it go away forever. The gravity is just so strong, it'll make it come back. So we're not going to lose the sun entirely, but it will go out to a larger distance. And so as it goes out to a larger distance, it's possible, for example, that it might fly by other systems. And there can be other things that will perturb it as it moves through um, this whole disaster that is this collision. So while we're not going to collide directly with anything, it's possible that our system could get jostled a bit. And so that you know, there can be very uh, minor perturbations that could cause the orbits of the planets to change a little bit. So have you guys also heard of the Oort cloud? Does anyone know where the comets come from? So does anyone have any ideas of what might happen with this whole jostling idea? I got, I got some hands because there's too many voices. Does somebody have comments? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So there's this a large body of rocky, icy um, structures or bodies out um, at pretty large distances away from the sun. They're kind of surrounding our, our solar system. And this is where we think the comets that you know, every so often travel within the inner solar system come from. So if you have these sort of flyby encounters as the sun moves out to larger distances, for example, you could potentially jostle some of those rocky, icy bodies in the outskirts and send some of those come in. So I think that's actually a fairly probable explanation, uh, idea of what might happen, is that you will get other bodies, things being kind of moved or perturbed in our solar system, such that we may become a bit more of a hostile environment for life in the future. So let's see some other ideas of what might happen. Oh yeah, this was a fun one. So there's actually a small probability that the sun, particles that look like the sun, might end up moving through M33. So there are all these other observers of this whole system, of this whole thing going on. There's these small satellite galaxies of our Milky Way and Andromeda. And there's actually enough of them that it is probable that as we send our sun to larger distances throughout this interaction, they could actually end up moving through some of these other observing galaxies that are seeing the system. So that's kind of, that was a surprising, I didn't actually quite expect that one. That was a bit interesting. <laughs> um, it, right, so as I said before, it's unlikely that the sun's going to be ejected completely from the system. But the sun is going to be moving faster than it is today. So the speed is going to go up, and that kind of goes hand in hand with this idea that the sun's going to end up at a larger distance than it is now. Oh yeah, and so, you know, there is, like, because there are all these other bodies around, and we know the speed of, of Andromeda, so I've been calling it Andromeda, but this is M31, same thing. Andromeda and the Milky Way, so we know the speed of Andromeda very well. 
We don't know the speed of all of these other smaller galaxies very well um, in comparison. And so what will happen, and there's also, it's a fairly complicated three-body, for the specific collision, we have two bodies, two objects that are undertaking this collision. But then when you throw in a third one, things get a bit more variable. And throw in multiple bodies, other uh, satellites are you know, going to have a fairly complicated problem on your hands. And so there's some general probabilities that, well, while it, generally I've shown you M33 is just going to watch this whole thing happen, it could also partake in the whole simulation and potentially end up hitting the Milky Way before Andromeda even does. So the way that these other smaller systems might be perturbed, some of them might be taking part in the collision more dramatically, others could be flung out to larger distances, um, but for the most part, we're really just going to be thinking of these smaller satellites uh, orbiting around the final product that is the Milky Way and, and Andromeda system collided, com, you know, combined into one. So one further question I'd like to pose to all of you is to think about what do you think of the future of astronomy then in four or five billion years? <laughs> I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of fun to think about these questions, right? So, so what do you think we as, you know, I'm, I'm a theorist, but I work on extragalactic topics, so topics outside of our own galaxy. So what is the prospect for extragalactic astronomy in the future. So again, hands, if uh, anyone's got any ideas. Yep. Um, I don't know, would it, would, would it depend on the radial distance from the center of the system? Because we're kind of like right now, because we're kind of further out. Yeah, that's right. We could be you know, kind of further out from the whole system, so maybe we can see more of the sky if we're in the outskirts. That's right. If we're in the very center, what's going to happen? Yeah, that's right. All you're going to see is just stars, right, or that are surrounding our Milky Way and Andromeda. So most of our astronomy is going to be stellar astrophysics. And extragalactic will really be meaning observing these small satellite galaxies that are around our own Milky Way, which is kind of interesting. This whole idea, we live in a great time right now where we can look at cosmology. We can think about the expansion of the universe. And we can think about the most distant galaxies and the first stars and the first galaxies. But in four billion years, you can't do any of it. <laughs> So I think that's uh, mainly what I wanted to talk to everybody today. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Gratina. We have plenty of time for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and I'd like you to speak into the microphone. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Do your calculations take into account the um, speed, uh, the, the expansion of the galaxy? And has the galaxy been expanding at the same rate, or is it going to get faster and faster? Right. So one of the things that astronomers have realized is that the universe itself is expanding. So you know, galaxies that are farther away are, are moving farther and farther away from us. So this is the other thing with extragalactic astronomy is going to be really difficult in the future because the distances between galaxies are only increasing. So you're not going to be able to see those things that are you know seem far away now. There's going to be even further away in the future. But the interesting thing with our own local group, our Milky Way, Andromeda, and these small satellites that surround us, is that we're actually bound to one another. So we know that Andromeda you know, is very different from all the other galaxies that we see because all the other ones are moving away from us. Andromeda is coming right at us. So the gravity, the gravitational interaction between Milky Way and Andromeda is actually overcoming that expansion of the universe. So we, for the, you know, for the most part, don't have to worry about it when you're thinking about what's going on in dynamics um, of the local group of galaxies. We have a question here. Mm -hmm. well, how did you handle 
the dark matter problem in your calculations? Yeah, so when we're talking about you know, gravity and the gravitational interaction between these two galaxies, actually this is related to the question that was just posed. We know that Andromeda and our Milky Way are moving towards one another, and they're not expanding like everything else is. So why is that? Well, the only way to explain that is if the Milky Way and Andromeda are a lot more massive than their actual stellar components suggest. There needs to be a dark matter component, because otherwise everything should have been expanding away. So based on the fact that they're moving towards one another, you can actually estimate what the total mass of our local group has to be to make that work. So that tells you what the total dark matter mass has to be. So it's not so free. I mean, there's a wiggle room of maybe a factor of two, but not much more than that. So we actually do have a fairly good handle on what the distribution of dark matter, of this unseen matter that has to be there. And that is really what's causing these two galaxies to collide into one another in the end. Um, and the other things that we know are the actual structure of the galaxies themselves. The speed at which stars are rotating within these galaxies is dictated based on the amount of material inside those galaxies. So we can put those into the models too. So we know the total mass and we also know the distribution of that mass because it has to match the observations. Other questions? Uh, let me see, anyone else? There's load oh. down. I'll come down here and then I'll come back up to you <laughs> and then to you. All right. Following up on that, how, what's uh, like the ratio of the mass of dark matter to the mass of visible matter yes. in either galaxy or both? Right. So we think there's, um, it's about 1 to 100. So there's about 10 to the 10 um, times the mass of the sun in stars in the Milky Way. And there's about 10 to the 12 in, in dark matter. Right, and that's about the same as there is in, in Andromeda. And the interesting thing is that when you go to these smaller, like these new dwarf galaxies that I showed at the beginning of the talk that we found, those things, those have probably have ratios of closer to 1,000, 10,000. I mean, there's much more dark matter than there is stars. And this is why we actually have computer simulations of how many, how many of those small satellites we should expect to see around our Milky Way. We have an idea of how much that should be. And the thing is that that doesn't actually match with the number that we see. And we think the explanation is, those simulations were made following the dark matter distribution, not the stars. And so we think that although there's a lot of dark matter there, there actually shouldn't be that many stars, and that's why you don't see them. Is there a question over here? Yes. Uh, in your early simulation of two colliding galaxies matching the Hubble Space Telescope mm -hmm. images, um, do you feed in the different peculiar galaxy scenarios and then have a simulation sort of uh, tie together those, each of those points? Yeah, so, so the amazing thing with that simulation is that the original simulation wasn't designed to match anything specifically. It was actually just a simulation of two spiral disk galaxies that kind of look like the Milky Way, and then it just set on a, a trajectory. It was a parabolic orbit to begin with, and just watch what happens. And then it was um, a scientist at Space Telescope, uh, Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, who then took that simulation and started to rotate it around and was like, oh my goodness, that matches this, and now this matches that. And so it wasn't actually a priori designed to match that, that, uh, those specific images. So it was designed overall, I mean, the idea of how, the, how tides work was motivated based on general images of interacting galaxies. But that particular sequence wasn't the simulation wasn't designed to match those observations, which is why it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you could just rotate this and find similar structures that match, I mean, first of all, means we have a whole lot of examples of interacting galaxies, but it also means that the general physics has got to be right. Hi. I have another question. 
if we're all hanging together as a group with the, us and Andromeda and the smaller dwarf mm -hmm. galaxies, and it's connected to the dark matter, is there a gravitational factor that you can calculate and put a number on as to what the gravity is for dark matter? So in terms of uh, the way gravity behaves with dark matter in this particular model, it behaves, the gravity that you put in is actually the same as you would put in for stars and in for gas even. So there isn't, it, there isn't anything particularly different about the way you would treat dark matter or stars or gas in terms of the gravity. What's different in terms of the way you deal with dark matter is that gas can cool. It can radiatively cool, so it can change temperature. And that's different from the way dark matter would behave. Dark matter doesn't radiate, so it can't, get, it can't clump. It can't cool and get denser. It can only interact with other things through gravity. Um, stars also can collide with one another, and they can scatter off each other. And that's something, again, that dark matter particles don't do. So, so the, way that dark, the only theory that we put in is that dark matter, that gravity is the same. <laughs> that's really the only thing that we put in. And then everyone, every single type of, um, of everything basically obeys gravity. Yes. Um, how, how exactly does your simulation of the combination of the Milky Way with Andromeda happen? Is energy lost due to the tidal interactions? Is that what's going on? Is that, I mean. You mean you know, why do the actual spiral in and yeah, actually. Yeah, why don't they just keep whipping around each other forever if right, there was right. no energy loss. I mean, something. Yeah. Is it the tidal interaction, the, the change in the positions and morphology of these two galaxies that is eating energy so that, or draining, sapping energy so, so that the two can combine together? Right, so, so something very similar to that is happening, and it's not actually tides. So um, as we've mentioned that there is this dark matter that we think is inside these galaxies. But it's not just inside where all the stars are. It's actually much, much larger than the actual galaxies themselves. It extends out to much, much larger distances. So as these two galaxies are moving, where the stars are actually located, they start moving through their own, the, the dark matter distribution of one galaxy overlaps with that of the other. And what actually happens in that case is that you actually have a friction force. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit interesting to think about. So as you're moving through these two different as the dark matter halos collide and actually start to interact with each other, these galaxies start to move within the dark matter halos of each other. And they actually cause wakes behind them. And those wakes cause those two galaxies to slow down. So they, the orbits do lose energy, but it's not because of general tides. It's actually because they're moving through a medium that is causing their orbits to slow down. So that's part of it. They're, they're gravitationally attracting one another. And at the same time, they're losing energy, which is why the orbits kind of spiral in towards one another. Well, this kind of opens up another question then. And that is, is it wrong to think about dark matter as just non-luminous ordinary matter? Are we talking about something that has a different property than ordinary matter? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So, no, no, that's right. And, and if so, why haven't we captured any in a jar yet? <laughs> okay, so, so dark matter, I mean, it, it absolutely does behave differently than the way normal matter does. And as I've mentioned before, normal matter can interact with itself in particular. So there are different theories for the way dark matter should behave. Sometimes there are some theories where dark matter can interact with itself. And there's also particularly expectations that dark matter can actually self-annihilate. Now, this is actually pretty cool, and this is related back to our um, topic earlier about these new dwarf galaxies. So if these new dwarf galaxies that people have found are really 
have dark matter ratios of like 1,000 to, to 1 to the stars. They have a lot of dark matter. And if it's possible that dark matter particles could annihilate, there should be a signal of that. There should be gamma rays that are emitted from that. And so these new dwarfs, and particularly one of them, they think they found that signal. Maybe. <laughs> so there was two papers that came out, honestly, last week. This is all, like, every, most of the stuff, some of the stuff I talked to you about at the beginning really is the past few days, and we haven't really flushed it all out yet. Two papers came out. One was from the Fermi collaboration and the Dark Energy Survey. This is the team that originally did these large surveys of the sky where these dwarfs were found. They went and looked at these dwarf galaxies and said, we don't really detect a significant signal of this annihilation of dark matter particles. But then another team went out and said, no, it's totally there in this one dwarf. And a third paper just came out today. No, it was this morning that we talked about it, so it was today. And so this third paper was saying, actually, we really do think it's there. And we think the reason they disagree, those two teams, is because they were looking at different versions of the data set. <laughs> so th this kind of stuff happens. But everyone's being kind of quiet about the whole thing because you don't want another disaster like BICEP2 or some other things that were happening earlier. So, um, so I think that... What's the gamma ray telescope? Fermi. Fermi. Yeah. So, that's a, so it's the Fermi collaboration that's come up with this. And so they've kind of been saying, no, we're not finding it. But our best hope for looking for this annihilation signal is to look at these dwarf galaxies. And the reason is because they have so much dark matter that there's very little other possibilities for any explanation for what that signal could be. People have tried to find this dark matter annihilation signal in the center of our own Milky Way, but there's all these other sources there. There could be other unseen point sources. It could be cosmic rays. There's all these other things that could create that signal. But in dwarfs, you can't really argue for that. So if they found it, this could be really, really cool. And I guess we're going to find out more in the next few weeks. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I also have a comment as well. Uh, Dr. Besla is the first theoretical astrophysicist I've met who knows her constellations. <laughs> That's right. So I would like to remind you again that barring the... Oh, did you have one more question? Okay, we'll do one more question, because we've got time. One more question, and then I'll, I'll finish things up. Here we go. Does dark energy play a role in your simulation? Right, so, so the way dark energy kind of factors in is, is similar to one of the questions earlier about the expansion of the universe. And so because these two galaxies, our, our local group is bound to one another, that expansion doesn't actually affect us. So I don't actually have to account for it in the, these particular simulations. But if you were thinking about larger structures, larger scales, then it would matter. Okay, barring the University of Arizona being in the National Basketball Championship, our next lecture will be two weeks from tonight. But we've got your email addresses. And obviously, I'm telling you now, I'm not going to have a lecture on the 6th of April if we're in the the championship. But we'll send out notices if we have to change the lecture to April 13th. The telescope's open. If you've never looked through our telescope, please do. And I will stamp student assignments down here. Let's thank Professor Bessela one more time. <laughs> <laughs>